We're going to look at God's Word here for our remaining moments this morning. And as you are preparing for that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about gift giving. You know, and, and from my observation in America, I don't, I don't think we're, uh, we deal well with gift giving. And maybe you haven't noticed this, maybe you haven't, I don't, I don't know. But let's define just briefly what a gift is, okay? A gift is something that is given from one person to another person. It's not earned, it's not won, it's not achieved. It's given without expectation or compensation. But in America, I think we don't like gift giving, if we're honest. And, and frankly, I don't know if we're really good at it. I mean, just think about the main figure in our, our secular Christmas holiday here in America, and that's who? Santa Claus, right? And you might think that Santa is all about giving gifts, but that's not true. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, making a list, checking it twice. He's going to find out. Yeah, you all know it. Yeah, that's right. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. Santa's not about giving gifts at all. No, he's about rewarding people. Right? That's not gift giving, not from the definition of a gift. Santa's a fraud. He's a product of American way. It's all about compensation. He, he's about finding out who deserves something only because they've earned it. They, de- they deserve it. And have you seen how that's affected our culture? It's affected you. And I found out this morning, as I was reviewing my sermon, it's affected me deeply. In fact, this week, in my foolish parenting, I'm just going to confess right now, I thought it was wise to, to possibly withhold a gift from one of my children to curb their behavior. And I'm reading through and preparing, and I'm confessing, Lord, I don't understand a gift this morning. I had to confess it to the kids. I'm sorry. Please forgive me for, for misunderstanding what a gift is. It's not something to be earned. It's not something to be achieved. But how do you feel when someone is, is opening a gift that you've given them? You've spent a lot of time thinking through, a lot of money even. And then when they get to the, the gift and they open it up and their reaction is, meh. By the way, I just quoted a teenager right then. Amen, parents? How does that make you feel? Or how does it make you feel when you stand in front of someone and they come up and hand you a gift and you weren't expecting it? And it's beautiful. And you didn't get them anything. We don't like that. Right? We feel a little bit uncomfortable. We feel obligated now. They gave us a gift and so now we're like, I got to get to Amazon and order something really quick to get something back to them. We don't like receiving gifts without any warning, without any discussion beforehand. Because when we receive a gift from someone without any explanation, now we feel like we're in their debt. And for many people in America, Christmas is about debt reconciliation. And, And what I've learned is that people don't give gifts they make trades wrapped in pretty paper. Isn't that the point, it seems, in Christmas for America? 
It's a gift exchange. That's why you set a limit on those gift exchange in those group settings, right? You set a money limit in some of the situations because you don't want feelings to get hurt. It's just an exchange. So if everyone exchanges the right amount, everyone will feel, feel uh, fine afterwards. There's no debt that they have to pay back afterwards because they don't want that pressure in life. But there are simply some gifts that we should receive that we could never give an exchange for. As humans, we can't take care of all the issues ourselves. There are gifts that we cannot afford and that we could never buy for ourselves. Have you ever thought much about that? Is there a need in your life that you cannot take care of all by yourself? This morning we enter into a book just for a few moments that was written 2,800 years ago. This book promises that God will not leave his people without a gift of rescue. They could not purchase this gift for themselves. They, they could only receive it. But to, re- to receive this gift, you have to recognize that you need this gift. To receive this gift, you need to understand the depth of your own need in your life. And this gift, as we come to the book of Micah, is in the form of a king to rule, a king who was promised long ago to come and to shepherd his people and to die for his people and to reign with his people one day. So here's the main idea this morning. Our rightful shepherd king has come just as God has promised. Our rightful shepherd king has come just as God has promised. And this is a sermon this morning about Jesus, who is our shepherd king who has come just as God has promised long ago. And that's the point of Christmas. That's the focal point. That's the goal. That's the central part of what Christmas is all about. It's that Jesus has come. And so we're going to look at a few verses, just a couple here in our series on ancient Christmas from the book of Micah, as we've looked in the Old Testament, looking forward to this coming ruler. And so I've broken up into three descriptions of this, this king, this one Jesus. Jesus is our ancient king. Jesus is our shepherd king. And third, I changed, is Jesus is our future ruler king. He's our future king. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Uh, again, don't feel any shame looking at the beginning table of contents, okay, if you don't know where Micah's at. It's right after the book of Jonah. But if you're using a Bible that's provided in the chairs, it's on page 730. And it would really help you to have a Bible open this morning as we look at these verses. Otherwise, you'll probably get distracted very easily. So page 730, if you're looking in the, the, the provided Bibles. And if you're unfamiliar looking into the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to look at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 this morning. So follow with me as we read this morning. Micah chapter 5, 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days." Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace." When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. First, this morning, we're going to look at Jesus as our ancient king. God is trustworthy because he's been faithful to all of the promises that he has made in his word. In the garden, we looked at a number of weeks ago, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and God promises that one will come who will bruise the head of the serpent. Later in Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, it writes, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. And from that, we learn that Judah is part of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, this ruler, this this ancient king, was promised long ago in the word of God. We looked at a few weeks ago in Isaiah 7 through a virgin and in Bethlehem, as we will see in our passage this morning. This morning, it says that this, this one, this ancient king, will come from Bethlehem. Ephrathah, verse 2, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. The word translated as little is, is probably better translated as trifling, which is something of little value. When they named the, the major cities of Israel in the Old Testament, Bethlehem didn't make the list. Uh, Bethlehem, in modern times, wouldn't even have a single traffic light in the city. They were too little too insignificant. And the hope for God's people who are suffering at this time would not come from the mighty city of Jerusalem, but from a small, trifling Bethlehem, a town of absolutely no national, let alone international consequence, except for the small detail that King David came from this town. But God's people had ignored God. They ignored God's promises They had forgotten about him in their lives. See, God had always been the redeemer from old, but his people had failed to listen to him time and time again. We we read that God's attributes of mercy, of love, of sovereignty and truth are from old, but but nowhere before is an individual described as, as coming forth from old. But this ruler has come, this ancient one. Micah is referring to Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God and who was born of a virgin Mary in Bethlehem. Jesus is our ancient king who was prophesied long ago, a king who would come as a means to restore and exercise the Lord's rule over his people. And this ancient king would come as Messiah And he would come from lowly circumstances. But in the meantime, Micah says that Israel would be abandoned by God to to devastation of her enemies and then eventually to exile. Their rightful king would not reign over them until time, the time when she who was in labor would give birth. 
In verse 3, it says, just as pain comes through childbirth, so God's people will experience this incredible pain as a result of the rejection of God. And then the son will be born. Isaiah, who's a contemporary with Micah, who's writing at the same time as Micah prophesied, as we looked at a few weeks ago in, in Isaiah 7, that the virgin will give birth. And we see that final conclusion in the New Testament through the birth of Jesus Christ. 700 years would pass from that prophecy to Christ's coming. When we jump those 700 years forward, we, we see that Micah's prophecy of Christ's birth was, was well known and expected. But yet we read this morning as Trevor was up here in Matthew chapter 2, the King Herod, he, he, he obviously didn't understand what was happening and asked, right? He asked where? He saw the location of the Savior's birth in Matthew 2. And, and where do the royal scholars go to give an answer? They go back 700 years to Micah chapter 5 in Bethlehem of Judea who are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This was so well known by the people and the expectation that this, this ancient king would come. And so Herod, as we read, sends forth wise men to seek out this child. He says to worship. But we learn through a dream that that's not what his plan was at all. He wanted him eliminated. Herod wanted to be the only king. Everyone believed this prophecy of the ancient king to come, even when it seemed unbelievable. What we learn from this prophecy of the ancient king is that Jesus being born in Bethlehem is that God's way of salvation is contrary to the expectations of modern man. Just like if you remember back in 1 Samuel when, when Samuel was tasked to go find the next king to replace King Saul, right? He goes to Jesse, and Jesse had a lot of sons, right? And his expectation was to, to choose the mighty big one just as they wanted, like Saul. Saul fit that pattern as this mighty, strong king. But he was told to choose David, the runt of the litter. We learn time and time again in God's word that God delights to use unlikely circumstances to display his glory. And so the ancient king, we learn in Micah 5, wouldn't come from a big town, but from little Bethlehem. Jesus, who was born in poverty and obscurity and in weakness as a babe. That's how God would choose to display this ancient king. And why does he choose this way? Why doesn't God choose the flashy, the big, the majestic way to bring forth his ancient king? He does this so that we can't boast in the achievements of men, but only in the glorious mercy of God. We can't say, of course, Bethlehem, now look at the might and power of this town. Of course, they would produce this king and all the human glory that would follow. No. All we can say is God is wonderfully free and wise, and he is never impressed with our bigness and our accomplishments. He isn't attracted to our achievements. He does everything 
to magnify his own glory and freedom and mercy. And he does this so that we will not earn any of that for ourselves. It's so that all the glory goes to God for what he has done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our human ancient king come from long ago doesn't come because of human greatness, but through the grace of God to lowly Bethlehem, so that God would get all the glory. Second, Jesus is our shepherd king. When Micah announces this prophecy, Jerusalem was facing a very dire situation as Assyria has come in to ravage the country. And although God miraculously saves the city, they were facing a big dilemma. Uh, Essentially, they were having ineffective shepherds as leaders. And they're teetering on the brink of despair. But Micah tells us in verse 4 of chapter 5 that this coming king will stand meaning that his royal son will do what David's other descendants could never do. The might and power of this new king are emphasized in this passage as well as his universal rule. He stands, not sits, to show us that he is actively shepherding his people and that he would establish his throne forever. Notice too, I don't know if you, you got this from me right at the beginning in, in verse 2, but, but he comes forth not primarily for the people's sake, but for God's. Look at verse 2, the end of it. From you shall come forth for me, who is to be the ruler in Israel. Here will stand one who comes to achieve God's purpose in history. He didn't think of us above all else when he came. He came to rule as a servant of the Lord. The Messiah is first of all come for the benefit and for the glory of God and his plans, and secondly, in response to the plight of his people. He comes and we get the benefit. Even more, the promised Messiah will be great in his ministry. Micah adds, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus affirmed this ministry when he, he talks about it in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. Unlike the false shepherds of Micah's time, corrupt leaders who would betray and oppress the people, God's promised king would come and tend his flock in the strength of the Lord for their benefit. His intentions for us will not be stopped due to the lack of strength. There is no lack of strength with our shepherd. The strength of the Lord is omnipotent strength, meaning there is no end in his strength. So Christian, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, omnipotent strength is on your side 
because our shepherd king tends his flock in the strength of the Lord. But he also won't just tend and shepherd us in strength, he will also rule us in strength, and he will die for us. Isaiah would foretell of this Jesus and what he would do and what he talks about there in John 10. He says to us long ago in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only hope for God's people and for every sinner is that God would send his own son to suffer the penalty for our sins. The only way for him to be your shepherd king is to believe that he needed to die for you. And you need to accept his, his death, the gift of death, the blood given for you for him to be your shepherd king. Now, if, if Jesus, friends, is our shepherd king, you know that the shepherd's in charge then, right? A sheep pen is not a democracy. All the sheep don't get one vote when it comes to Jesus. What the shepherd says goes because the shepherd is in charge. And this shepherd has done everything necessary for his sheep. He laid down his own life for the sheep, to protect the sheep, to supply for the sheep. So our job as the sheep of Jesus is to surrender ourselves to him in all things, whether that's in marriage, raising our kids, working our jobs, or even getting along with our relatives over Christmas dinner. Surrendering to him means we obey him in all of our lives. And when we obey his word and what he has done for us, we recognize that he is shepherd over us. I've said this before to my kids, do this, obey me, because I'm your father. And I've had kids occasionally come back and say, Dad, I'll obey if you explain it to me. It has to make sense to me. And then they might be happy to obey. But that's not obedience. That's agreement. When a father speaks to a young child, I'm, I'm saying, you obey whether you agree with me or not because I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm 46, and you're six. And if you live your life on the basis of obeying only when things make sense to you, you're going to be dead in two hours. Jesus is our shepherd king, meaning he knows what's best for us. And our right response to our shepherd king, Jesus, is to obey, not to seek to have agreement. But if you only do what God says, if it makes sense to you, then you have the authority and not him. And that's not obedience. That's just agreement. Jesus calls each of us to submit our lives to him, whether we are a new Christian or one who has been walking with him for 40 years. So is he your shepherd king this morning, friends? Do you currently submit yourself to him, Christian? Or are you constantly looking to shepherd yourself? 
Are you in charge of your life or is he? Only you can answer that, friends. He is our shepherd king and we should seek to obey and submit our lives to him. Third, Jesus is our ruler king, our future king. This is the last description I have for us this morning. Jesus just isn't, isn't our ancient king or our shepherd king, but he's our, our future ruling king. Micah is telling them, don't worry about all the things that will happen, but at some point a ruler will rise up and he will deliver us. Of course, they're probably thinking about this ruler to come make Israel strong, a, a political entity again. But that's not what the text says. It says they will they will dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then he says, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What he's saying here, just for a moment, is this is a multi-ethnic community. This is a multi-ethnic kingdom. It goes to the ends of the earth. The people of God is bigger than we realize. And I just the pause here, I can't wait for Christ to come back for his church so that we can see this multi-ethnic church. Friends, it's going to blow your mind. People from every nation, every tongue, worshiping God. A church is bigger than we think. But here, though, there's hope for God's people looking forward, a, a new David would come in the strength of the Lord to shepherd them to, to green pastures. This ruler would come to offer security, something that was hard to imagine for them, an assurance of God's blessing through the forgiveness of sins, though. Ephesians 2.14 says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It said that there was an inscription on the wall in the outer courtyard of the Jerusalem temple warning Gentiles that they would only have themselves to blame for their death if they passed beyond it into the inner courts. But here Paul's writing to the Ephesians saying that dividing wall is no longer because we're in Jesus Christ. He has brought us together as one people because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And in him, the people's peace will be embodied. We'll have peace. In him, the people's peace will be accomplished. In him, the people's peace will be secured. And God's mercy is given us, embodied in Jesus Christ. This one whose origin is from old actually died on the cross as a sacrifice, taking God's wrath for the sins of all of us who turn from our sins and turn to God through Jesus Christ. We would have peace, finally and fully through him. But earthly peace, that would not come. It hasn't come quite yet. He says at the end of our passage, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The threat in Micah's time came from Assyria with danger looming from Babylon. That's the land of Nimrod. And so Micah dresses his image of future victory in terms of defeat. The numbers seven and eight here speak of an adequate supply of, of leaders who under the promised Messiah would defend their territory and strike back with great effect. But not yet. 
Ultimately, God's people would suffer years of pain and turmoil to, to punish them for effectively abandoning their God, their rebellion against him. But this gift would come, this rescue would come in the form of a baby, the new and greater David, the ruler king. And he would shepherd not only Israel, but all nations, as we said, giving peace and making his name great throughout the whole earth. This peace would come, and yet we long for earthly peace. But the peace that we're talking about here, Micah knew it. He had experienced this peace, and he describes it beautifully at the end of his book, a praise coming from someone who's been changed. Just turn with me a couple pages to, to Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This was the monumental work that the Messiah would come to do. There were definitely enemies that needed to be eliminated for Israel. And they would be. But their greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, is sin and judgment. That is the greatest enemy of all. This is why Jesus came. This is why we celebrate and remember Christmas. He does not retain his anger forever towards our sin. He will have compassion for us because of Jesus. And so everyone who trusts in him, their sins are cast into the depths of the sea. What a fabulous promise we have for Christmas. Christmas is all about Jesus, right? I'm here at the end, okay? You've, you've done well this morning. Our rightful king coming as a baby. He came in weakness. He came as a lamb, meek and mild. He was crucified. He took the punishment we deserved. He came as a gift for us. A gift of grace. And the only way you can receive a gift is that you admit that you need the gift. Can you think back of some of the worst Christmas gifts you got as a kid? Mine were socks and underwear. I hated them, but I needed them. I didn't want to accept them. I wanted something else. But that was a gift I needed. I needed to swallow my pride. There are gifts that are given to us that make us swallow our pride. If you wake up tomorrow morning and get a cookbook for dieting from a family member, you have to swallow your pride and accept the gift, right? And then the second book is about how to get rid of selfishness. You have to accept the gift. Some gifts are hard to receive, right? Thanks so much for the gift. I'm overweight and I'm selfish. I will learn that. Thank you. 
See, there's no way to receive the gift, thankfully, without admitting that you need that gift. And there is nothing like the gift offered that makes you swallow your pride more than the depths of the gift of Jesus Christ at Christmas. You see, if God had to become human to go to the cross and to suffer infinitely and in an incredible depth, that means, friends, that you are in horrible shape on your own. That means that nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ could save you. So no matter how much you've convinced yourself this last year that you can just do it yourself, that you can turn around your life all on your own, that if you just buckle down and make good decisions every day, if you just somehow keep a short account with God and just say you're sorry a lot, if you can just try to be on your best behavior that somehow, some way, God would receive you, then you are saying, I don't need that gift. Nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ could save you. You cannot make your own way. Every other religion on this planet says that you need to do something to earn salvation, that you can do something to make things right, except Christianity. The Bible says you need the gift of Christ because you can do nothing about your sin on your own. And to accept the gift of Jesus Christ means that you have to admit that you are a sinner and there's no other way but Jesus Christ. You need to be saved by his grace. You need to give up control over your life. You need to give over control of everything to Jesus. And that means you have to swallow your pride. Perhaps this morning you're here out of politeness to a family member who's asked you to come. Or you're here this morning just out of curiosity. I want you to know you're always welcome here. We meet every Sunday, Lord willing, at 1030. And you can gather for worship with us, not just Christmas Eve. But if you are not quite certain who Jesus is and your need for him, I cannot urge you enough that you need to think deeply about Jesus and your need for him today and tomorrow and the coming days. He is God's good gift to you, friend. God doesn't need what we would give him, but we desperately need what he gives to us through Jesus Christ. And so my My question to you is, have you received this gift of grace that's come through Jesus Christ? That's the good news. That's the gospel. That though we have sinned, God sent his only son to, to, for us, a gift that would come to redeem us, to make us acceptable in God's sight, 
And I pray that you would be transformed and made new through Jesus Christ this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning. And you are good to your people every day. Today is no different. We thank you that we can gather this morning together as the body of Christ here in Edgewood to worship you. And I pray that everyone here would take your word this morning and plant it deep within our hearts and, and toss over it and think through it. Help us to worship you. Help us to remember the greatest gift we could ever receive is your love displayed for us on the cross and that we would live in light of that love in all that we do. We do pray for those this morning that have joined us for worship but do not have a relationship with you. God, I ask that you would save them. You would give them faith to believe in you and to trust in you above themselves. And may you receive, God, all of the glory for what you do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.